I'm Mark Walsh. Coming up on today's show, how to make great ideas stick. There is a certain narcissism in the think tank world, which is like, oh, we're so smart that if we just share our genius, somebody's going to care. And the truth is, Washington doesn't lack for ideas. It lacks for the trust to engage ideas. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Our guest today is Jason Grumet. He's the founder and CEO of the Bipartisan Policy Center. But now, before you fall asleep, let me tell you right now, he brings the dry element of policy to life. Here's how. We talked about infrastructure, the giant infrastructure bill. Plenty of details. It can get very boring. But it was an example of bipartisan behavior on the Hill that we have not seen for some time. Encouraging signs? Jason talks about it. Secondly, and he's an expert in this stuff, primaries and elections. He told us how the primary system is really kind of twisting and almost in some ways perverting the kind of candidates we get. And that should affect you because we are voting for candidates once they get out of primaries. Lastly, we talked about partisanship, which he lives every single day. And he's right. He called it a blood sport. He's not nonpartisan. He's bipartisan. And that means working together. So Jason Grimay is literally the poster child for how things should be working in Washington, which strangely is the name of our show. So here's our conversation. So walk me through the history of the Bipartisan Policy Center. You founded it. What made you think this was the right thing to do at the right time? So I'm a middle child, and I think that uh, I've always enjoyed being kind of in the middle of a debate. Uh, The Bipartisan Policy Center actually grew out of an energy project that was back in 2000 trying to see if there was any space between the careening debate between the Kyoto Protocol and the Arctic National Drilling Conversation. And Vice President Cheney had just come out with his secret energy plan, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about whether there was any potential to move forward a bipartisan discussion on climate change. And so we created a project really just focused on that, where we brought together kind of a crazy quilt of people, recognizing there was about a one in three chance they'd be able to agree to nothing, but a one in three chance that if they could actually agree in a meaningful way, it would move the politics. Because in 2001, and it's even more true today, there is nothing less important than getting 20 moderates together mm-hmm. for a thoughtful conversation. Mm-hmm. And so our goal was to get you know, the guy who led the Cheney Energy Plan and the head of the Natural Resources Defense Council's energy project and CEOs and a bunch of advocates all together came out with a set of recommendations that actually in a meaningful way proposed a bipartisan energy plan that included mandatory action on climate change. And we then got kind of dumb and lucky and bumped into the Congress when they were trying to pass energy legislation. So our proposal had a significant impact on the 2005 and then 2007 energy bills. And so I kind of had the sense of like it was either a drop the mic moment because connecting philanthropy commission to outcome is kind of like a once in career activity usually Mm -hmm. or double down. And I think we had the sense that the, the kind of conversation we had created that was evidence-based and iterative and had a communications arm and a lobbying arm, that that probably had some traction on other issues. And I was able at that point to then get four former Senate Majority Leaders, Bob Dole, Howard Baker, George Mitchell, and Tom Daschle to come together, created the Bipartisan Policy Center, which then just kind of expanded the premise of the Energy Commission. And now, as you know, we have about 110 employees and work on a, a wide range of issues. So those four gentlemen, two Ds and two Rs, how... How hard was it to get them into the corral? Uh, good story. We had been working with Senators Daschle and Dole around climate change and agriculture and knew that the two of them were basically interested in this kind of discussion. Howard Baker um, 
has a Baker Institute down at the University of Tennessee, and he'd been leading a lot of conversations on civility and humor in politics. And so we reached out to him, and he was quickly interested. We had a hard time tracking down Senator Mitchell, busy guy, negotiating you know, peace in Ireland. And I actually um, knew that he was going to be at the Clinton Global Initiative. And for those of you who remember, that was a kind of a Lollapalooza of you know, centrist Democratic politics and self-importance. Burning man. Burning for, man uh, yeah. for yeah, self-important centrist Democrats. <laughs> And I was brought into Mitchell uh, as he was in the green room getting kind of powdered up for his panel. And yeah. while he was being buffed, invited him to join uh, this foursome. And the four of them agreed. Dole, whose sense of humor remains, I think, just impeccable, indicated when we launched the center that the only time the four of them had ever been in a room together, there was also a coffin. So it was only at state funerals. where the, So they, they had worked together in twos and threes, but literally the four former majority leaders had never worked on a particular project together. So they were all enthusiastic about that. Well, speaking of coffins, uh, and forgive the analogy, how how soon can you and your team, when you start a new initiative or over the, over the years, as you've been pursuing a specific stance or maybe collaboration around a given bill, how soon do you know when the magic is happening in the room or in the conversation? Or have you been fooled a lot? Well, so I'm going I'm to hold you to that. Speaking of coffins, which is actually a really <laughs> lovely right. uh, entry point to a conversation— right. So, you know, I think in our experience, it usually takes 12 to 18 months if we're really trying to do something meaningful. So if we're trying to work on an issue like immigration reform or climate change or entitlement reform, where there really is a lot of controversy and anger and polarization, it usually takes three months or so for everybody to say the thing they were going to say at the beginning of the project and let that just kind of seep in. Mm-hmm. And then we had this iterative-based discussion where over a period of time, a collective truth kind of floats to the top. I mean, if you require people to keep coming back and to eventually substantiate their views with evidence, you find that you get a reasonably interesting set of ideas that generally hold together. Every project that has ever accomplished anything has gone into the ditch at one point in the process because no one really knows what their bottom line is until it's transgressed. Mm-hmm. And so at every moment, there's, a, there's an issue. It's not always the most important substantive issue, but there's an, an issue that just defines the emotional fight in a project. The project derails. Everyone says this will never work. It is the process of pulling it out of the ditch yeah. that tends to actually create the constructive tension that then allows the group to go forwards. And what's, what's unique about our work at the Bipartisan Policy Center is we don't just write reports to feel good, right? We don't hit print and think we've accomplished anything. We then take that work and with lobbyists and communications efforts, you know, go and take it to the hill yeah. and actually make sure people are engaging with the conversation. Well, as I tell people, the middle P stands for policy. And that, I guess, is another feature of where the organization is, which it, it has both sides of the coin. You have a C3 and a C4. What was the thinking behind that and, and how do they work together? Or I guess I guess they're not supposed to, but how, how does it play out? Yeah, so for the, for the non-tax geeks in the room, yeah. right, the uh, 501c3 is the tax status for a classic think tank nonprofit. And by law, you cannot use any of those resources to lobby. None. 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 Well, well, not none. Very few. Very few. Now, lobbying has this kind of scarlet L attached to it. But it, if you want to actually influence public policy – you actually have to talk to public policymakers. And the act of engaging a public policymaker, according to the IRS, is lobbying. And so we have always been big fans of lobbying. I like to say, you know, we are are arming the hired guns of principled compromise, right? If if the bipartisan policy center isn't willing to get into the trenches and fight like hell, then we're just ceding that territory to the, you know, traditional special interests. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they are not actively created and animated to support the public good. They're working on a particular economic point of view. And so, you know, I think 
there is a certain narcissism in the think tank world, which is like, oh, we're so smart that if we just share our genius, somebody's going to care. And the truth is, you know, Washington doesn't lack for ideas. It lacks for the trust to engage ideas. Well said. And that trust comes from knowing the person you're talking to, and those are usually lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Jason Grimay, founder and CEO of the Bipartisan Policy Center here in Washington, D.C. The show is What's Working in Washington. You mentioned earlier a key word to me, evidence. I know that one of the things that's kind of a core set of efforts now is as evidence-based legislation, which some might argue is an oxymoron, uh, and you kind of touched on it humorously before. Where do you think we are, at, particularly with this new administration coming on? And let's take infrastructure as an example with evidence-based legislation. Is it, is it taking hold? So, you know, look, we, we have a quaint affinity for substance. Um, <laughs> you know, we would argue that facts are necessary, but certainly not sufficient for policymaking. We, we had an evidence-based policy project, and then we realized that sounded a little bit ambitious. So we now have an evidence-informed policy project. Better. Okay. And so, look, you know, most of the people who come to Congress, not all, but most, actually showed up for the right reasons. And they had this imagination that they would get into conversations with experts and they would use hearings and develop a body of, you know, conversation upon which to then have a good fight. And it still happens a little, but that used to mostly happen in congressional committees. Mm -hmm. And for a bunch of reasons we can talk about, congressional committees have really become much weaker agents of the democracy than they used to be. And so one of the things that we actually try to do at the BPC is essentially fill in that gap. You know, we try to bring people together to have a good fight based on substance and come out with a basis of fact, not which are objectively true, but which are rigorous, transparent, and embraced by a broad enough political ideology that they are credible. And then from that, we try to have a good fight. So we're going to touch on committees later because you really, that really, that hook really stuck in my craw a little bit for all the right and wrong reasons, because I think most Americans think committees still do a whole bunch of work, but they really don't. But let me ask you this before we take a quick break. How often do you use your law degree in your job in a given week? Well, um, Somewhere between always and never, um, you know, so I never took a bar exam. And so I, I'm not an actual attorney. Um, if you have a law degree, you get this ridiculous deference as if you know something unique about the legislative process. And so I, I lean on that credential often, but whether that is um, fact or fiction, I would leave to the audience. Yeah. Well, so far you've proven that at least you paid attention in uh, law school. Apparently you went to one that's pretty well known. But anyway, it's Jason Grimay, CEO and founder of the Bipartisan Policy Center here on What's Working in Washington. When we return, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about committees. If there's anybody that can make the committee structure on the Hill sound uh, be non-dry, it's our guest Jason Grimay today. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And with that, we'll take a quick break. Coming up after the break. So, you know, I think civility feels like such a gentle game, and the reality is that collaboration is a blood sport. We're taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Number one, you could rate us, whether you're listening on on Federal News Network or perhaps on a podcast. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh 
at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. Lastly, we'd like to hear of guests that you think would be great for this show. If there's someone you believe would be a wonderful partner for me on what's working in Washington, be sure to email that same address with the person's name and what you think they'd be good at discussing with me. It's what's working in Washington. Welcome back to What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're really excited to have as our guest today, Jason Grumet. Jason is the founder and CEO of the Bipartisan Policy Center here in Washington, D.C., an organization I am proud to serve in the board of directors of for a number of years. They're doing great stuff every single day. Well, let's get to the great stuff that the BPC does. You mentioned earlier in the show about committees. Let's help our listeners figure out yeah. how committees used to be productive or maybe were more productive and are less so now. Do you see a future? Will it become more productive? Is there a is there a hill ahead we're going to climb successfully, or what do they yeah. do now? So look, there, there's there's a couple things people should be aware of. Um, you know, the first is what's your imagination of the political process, right? The story of this country is not you know 250 years of placid cohesion, right? It's a fight. Yeah, committees used to be the place for the good fight because they balanced two things. They had legitimate, authentic, partisan interests, which are always going to be part of what animates our political process, right? The constructive collision of ideas has always been what's made for good, durable public policy. But they also had a commitment to substance, right? The Ag Committee had a shared sense that they cared about agriculture, and the Environment and Public Works Committee had some expertise. And so the committees were that place where you had really the right balance of legitimate partisan interest and subject matter expertise and commitment to constituency, What's happened over the years, shockingly, is that leadership has decided, really, they'd rather be in charge a lot more. And so you've seen the executive branch arrogate a lot of power to the presidency, but also, you know, McConnell, Schumer, Pelosi, McCarthy, they've really taken over a lot of the legislative process. And so what's that done is it's just weakened the value of committees. You have situations where a committee will pass a significant bill with a big bipartisan margin and leadership will just never even take it up. Wow. And so what that has done is diminished the reason for people to really dig into their committee process. Now, there's a big fight about that. And we're starting to hear, particularly the the younger members, you know, the old days, you'd come in, you'd speak when spoken to for a couple terms, and you'd hang in there for 25, 30 years, you'd finally get your gavel, and it would be your turn. And so there was a rationale for trying to take a little bit of the power away just from the committee chairs, but under the premise of broadening that power to the rest of the membership, what really happened was leadership scooped it all up. So this is an ongoing conversation. I think you're starting to see areas where two committee chairs really work well together. So like Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski worked very well together in the Energy Committee. Patty Murray from Washington and Lamar Alexander from Tennessee worked very well together on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. And those have been the places where we've been able to generate meaningful, collaborative, bipartisan progress. So I think you're starting to see a little bit more focus of trying to bring power back to the committees. The last thing I'll say Members of Congress don't have a lot of time. Yeah. And so I think what we don't realize is that the amount of time they have to spend in their districts and fundraising and with multiple committees, we really need to give them, I think, a, a more manageable schedule if they want if we want them to show the kind of expertise that the issues demand. Well, a little inside baseball, and I mean no disrespect with this example, but Marjorie Taylor Greene being taken off all committees right. seems to have a lot more time to do what she wants to do. Has any in your experience has anybody ever had no committees in their in their role? Well, uh, no, um, other than people who are kind of been convicted and are just kind of waiting <laughs> trial. Um, but it's an important example because I mean some people are coming to Congress now 
to build their social media creds. Right. Right. I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke truth when she said, I don't really care about committees because no one was going to pay attention to her views in committees. She wasn't going to be doing the hard work of reading testimony and answering tough questions and so or asking tough questions. So, you know, I, I do think that, again, the majority of members of Congress are good people with bad incentives. Um, there are the exceptions like major, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to the topic du jour, or maybe a topic for the first chunk of time for this new administration, which is the infrastructure bill. In your opinion, is that a shining city on the hill where rational people have come together from both sides of the aisle, quote unquote, although there is no aisle, as our colleague Michael Steele once claimed, have come together to actually have a conclusion that makes sense for our nation? Or do you think this may be a one-off? For the last 15 years, infrastructure was the best idea that never happened, right? If you do the after-action report of the first year of the Obama administration, the first year of the Trump administration, what everyone said is, oh, they should have done infrastructure. But they didn't. Yeah. And so it matters that, you know, President Biden, with some leadership from the Republican and Democrats in the Senate, were able to really put together a really significant investment in the nation's future. And, you know, the fact that it's been successful now has everyone looking back and saying, oh, well, that was easy. It was infrastructure. But, I mean, the infrastructure bill died 30 times yeah. before it became, you know, an, a successful initiative. And so I think it actually does matter a lot that they were able to get this done. And it will increase the ambition. And this is something I think that's important for the viewers to understand. Collaboration is hard work, right? The, the rationale to put the long nights and weekends into actually trying to develop an authentic compromise and take the political risk of actually working across the aisle is diminished if the chances of success are, you know, one in 10. Mm-hmm. And so what this success means is it reminds people, you know what, you actually can get something done in Washington. Yeah. And while there's been quite a bit, you know, I think Matt Iglesias wrote a great piece on the kind of the secret democracy saying, look, you know, a lot's actually happening. They just don't talk about it. Yeah. Congress being kind of loud and proud, front page, top of the fold negotiation, President Trump trying to tank it, didn't have any impact on the process. I think that will increase the ambition. It's not going to get them together on climate change or immigration, but on trade policy and you know global competitiveness and higher ed and opioid addiction and student loans. I mean, there's a whole lot of issues that have a long history of actual cross-aisle, broad, bipartisan engagement. And I think those issues now have a lane that they didn't have before. You didn't mention the pandemic. What, what do you see that experience doing to the kind of sense of public cooperation that we're hoping to see more of? Tough, tough tale there, right? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. would, you, would, you would think that there's nothing like biology to show us that we all have something in common, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you would, you would right. have thought that yeah. this was, you know, like, like the Mars landing, right? This was something that would have made us all realize that our basic core humanity is more than... And that's not how it played out, yeah. right? I mean, the fact that we are still having kind of, you know, ideological fights about, you know, vaccines is kind of remarkable. Um, you know, I do think that it shifted the Biden agenda towards infrastructure, which was a more bipartisan possibility mm-hmm. than if we didn't have a pandemic, right? Had we not been dealing with a national and global health and economic crisis, the issues that would have motivated an early Biden administration would have been those core base issues like immigration and climate. It would have been a lot harder, I think, for the administration to kind of build that basis of collaboration. While things haven't been easy, you know, the pandemic did focus us on just the fragility of family outcome and health outcome. And so I think that um, in some ways, gives us an opportunity. We're talking with Jason Grumet, B, uh, BPC, Bipartisan Policy Center founder and CEO, one of the most civil persons I know. And let's talk about civility. You mentioned it earlier. 
Can I wish for a day when some sense of civility may return to these kinds of conversations, or do you think it's been perhaps damaged forever? So, you know, I think civility feels like such a gentle game, and the reality is that collaboration is a blood sport, right? I mean, you know, you've got to be tenacious and courageous and aggressive if you want to pull somebody out of the orthodoxy of their party view. It's really easy to be a rigid partisan. It actually requires a lot of guts to be civil. And so I think we have to understand that there's courage in civility. I think the, you know, the key question, again, always comes down to who. We're not going to have 100 members of the U.S. Senate collaborating because 40 or 50 of their business model isn't about collaboration. Right. But on a particular issue, there are usually 60 or 70 members who can work well together on that particular issue. So rather than kind of hoping for a whole big you know, bunch of moderates or independents, I think you've got to look you know, issue by issue. Members of Congress are complicated. And you know, Josh Hawley, who's you know, not the easiest guy to work with, was really good on questions around low-income households and mm-hmm. what we need to do and was interested in talking about universal basic income. You know, we had a housing commission. Um, it was co-chaired by Kit Bond, who was mm-hmm. notoriously kind of a pretty core progressive conservative. You know, Kit was the most passionate advocate for addressing the homelessness problem of anybody on the commission. And so I think, you know, you have to put your group together. But if you create the right setting and, again, you provide the right kind of support, you really can move people forward. And I'll just kind of belabor the fact that, you know, in the think tank industrial complex, there are lots of organizations helping folks on the far left and the far right maintain party orthodoxy. Yeah. When two members of Congress actually want to try to work together, they're usually pretty lonely. And so what we've tried to do with the BPC is just provide that kind of supportive infrastructure to help members do the hard work that's necessary to actually craft a real compromise. Yeah. Well, sticking on that, I know that you guys have a program where you match together two congresspeople from widely disparate backgrounds, philosophies, and geographies. Walk us through that program. So it is our American Congressional Exchange. And if you're ever really just depressed about what's going on in Washington, you know, you should join us on one of these trips. We have members of the House host each other in their districts for a couple days. Sometimes they bring spouses, sometimes not. And, you know, they really go through a detailed, you know, nine, 10 hours of meetings all around their district. And, you know, Derek Kilmer uh, from the Olympic Peninsula, Washington, a great guy, basically summed it up by saying, you know, if you want to know where somebody's coming from, you should figure out where they're coming from. Yeah. And it gives members of Congress a little bit of an appreciation of why their colleagues are advancing the priorities and the interests they're advancing, because they come from really different places. And, you know, the, we have a divided country, but it's not ungovernable. And the question is, can we help Congress figure out how to govern that divided nation? Who are some, without names, I guess I should say, are you confident that there's a next generation of local leaders who are headed for state-level leadership and then moving up to our city of Washington, D.C. on the Hill, a congressional, senatorial, whatever? Are, 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 you, are you confident about the future of, of a leadership? Well, yes and no. I, you know, I think that... Um, it has long been true that um, local government, because it's kind of closer to the ground, has always been a little more focused on pragmatism, a little less driven by ideology. And so it used to be the case that you wanted to see people kind of move up through local government to national office, assume that they'd bring more of that kind of pragmatic, right. collaborative spirit. Last four or five years, you know, local government's gotten kind of, kind of nutty. Yeah. Now, not across the country, but I mean, a lot of the least civil, least substantive interactions are happening in state legislatures. Right. And so I think in the current, you know, kind of incentive structure, oftentimes it is the wackiest state legislator who's running in that primary to try to unseat 
the incumbent. And so I think, you know, we are not fans of term limits. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that, um, you know, some members of Congress after 20 years are great and should serve 20 more, and some should, never should have served two. Yeah. But um, it's not necessarily true that you want to kick out the folks who are there. Well, let's do a little bit of magic wand here. Uh, you're obviously, Jason Grimay is our, is our guest today, BPC, Bipartisan Policy Center founder and CEO. If you could wave a magic wand about the election process, because you're, you're in the policy world sure. when people show up. You could wave a magic wand about the election process. Are there any, are there any things you would change? How many more minutes do we have? 75? <laughs> so, Not enough. Look, the, the, we need to focus on primaries, right? Yeah. I mean, in most primary elections, particularly in that midterm, sometimes you'll get like 8, 10, 12% of the registered public voting. So Ouch. when, when yeah. you are in that shallow end of the pool, you know, the people who tend to show up on that Tuesday morning in the middle of an uh, election cycle are generally the base, most passionate voters on both sides. Yeah. And so that does not give you necessarily an effective representation of an entire district, certainly, of the country. Um, so we need to do a lot to try to encourage voter turnout. I think we've seen now a lot of good and a lot of challenge in the last couple of you know, election cycles. But the efforts to broaden access to the polls because of COVID has given us, I think, a real agenda for what it might take to increase that turnout. And at the same time, obviously, it has weaponized this debate. Um, you know, the good news, going back to evidence a little bit, is members of Congress are actually really bad at gaming the system to their own advantage. And so this idea that turnout kind of favors Democrats is actually not supported in most of the country by evidence. And in fact, what may be happening is incumbent Republicans just empowered their primary challengers. Yeah. And so I think we're going to start. This is going to take a while. You know, in the past, people were cared about elections and it's like 60 days before and 12 days after. Yeah. We're now going to have the national conversation around elections to be kind of a constant part of the dialogue. And we're going to have to you know, do the hard work to follow up and see what really happens in Georgia, what really happens in Texas and Florida. Did you ever think you'd see two, four, or $5 billion spent on a national election like we're seeing now, the money? I think it's more important about the character of the money than the quantity of the money. Yeah. And like, you know, maybe for another show, we can talk about the woes of McCain-Feingold. But you know, about 10 years ago, we basically said, we're going to squeeze down on the parties, and then we ripped the roof off the building with Citizens United and encouraged all of the you know, dark money folks to take control and so it's really it's the character of the money more than the quantity that matters. I do think we can make some progress focusing on, you know, disclosure and we can try to again strengthen the political parties, which is probably not an obvious point to many of your listeners, but you know, when it comes to the grown-ups in the room, usually the political parties are uh, in fact the best players. Our guest today has been Jason Grumet. He's the CEO, founder of the Bipartisan Policy Center based here in Washington DC. Thanks a lot for your time today. Always fun. Thanks for listening. You know, I often find myself wondering, what's great about Washington, D.C.? And then I'm reminded about our business, our government, our arts, our not-for-profits, our education arenas. All are fantastic and special, not only to our nation, but really to the world. I'm glad I live here. I hope you are, too. And I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again... Thanks for listening. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our content intern is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music is performed by the Aberman Brothers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.